My prayer is that our minds would be renewed. In fact, this morning, what we're going to be going through now, and we're going to be jumping in, and you can already turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 2, as we were writing the commentary, and we are writing the commentary on Daniel. Zechariah is being printed, I don't know if I can say as we speak, I don't think these individuals work on Sunday, but, but it is being printed in this time period and ready for Shepherd's Conference. We are busily working on Daniel, and I remember thinking, what, what is going to be MacArthur's first message on Daniel? Is it going to be Daniel, the whole chapter 1? Is it going to be Daniel, maybe chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, or something of that nature? First half of Daniel 1, or something of that kind. And actually, it was three messages, three messages, on Daniel 1, 1 through 2. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a long commentary process. At this rate, we'll, we'll finish Daniel when I'm retired. So, <laughs> Daniel 1, 1 through 2, there are such treasures here, really because Daniel is such a rich book. Daniel is a rich book. It encompasses so much theology, and it mobilizes it. And that's why we've had the messages that we've had to prepare us for this book. If you remember, we had messages on what God has been doing all the way from Genesis to the book of Daniel so that we understand the questions and the issues that Daniel is addressing. We had a message on the nature of the kingdom, and that's going to be very important because Daniel's going to talk a lot about God's kingdom And that's going to be essential to pull and draw upon. We talked about Daniel's biography because understanding who Daniel is and his life and the chronology of his life and the situations of his life are going to be important because that's dealt with in real time. We even had an overview of Daniel because you could get lost in the details of Daniel. It is very easy to do that. And so we need a framework to hang everything upon. We will need all of this information. We will need all of this information going forward through the book because Daniel deploys it rapidly and in real time. It is his life and biography going even as he's discussing the kingdom, even as there are issues in God's plan that are being advanced and addressed. And all of this is happening simultaneously, and we have to draw upon all of it. So we need to understand everything that has been going on. You could think of it this way that Daniel says a lot and a little, and what we need to be able to recollect is everything Daniel and his audience understood. And so we're just playing catch-up to where they are so that we can understand Daniel's issues and purposes, the theology of God's sovereignty, and the life of Daniel as it all comes together to demonstrate the point of the book. And there's a lot of ways to articulate the point of the book. We could talk about the sovereignty of God over kingdoms in history. We could talk about it in terms of the supremacy of God. All of those would be true. But here's another way to think about it that ties with specificity all that we have been discussing in the book of Daniel and the entire point of Daniel, and that is the name of Daniel. Daniel means God judges. God judges. And you might wonder, how does this demonstrate that God rules all of history? How does this demonstrate that God is supreme? Well, the phrase God judges is actually found somewhere in Daniel. It's actually found in the climax and the center of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. Turn there with me. In Daniel 7, verse 10... The text reads that there is this river of fire that flows out before the ancient of days. And it says this, 
that the court sat for judgment. What is going on in the context of Daniel 7? It is this, that in the flow of history, we have four major kingdoms. Four major kingdoms that punctuate the landmarks of major events of history. The kingdoms, say, of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and a Rome and ultimately a revived Rome that is the eschatological kingdom of the Antichrist. And in this final revived Rome, the climax of human wickedness and depravity, the kingdom of the Antichrist, there is a decree from heaven and all of the heavenly court sits down and they sit down for judgment and they hand judgment against that nation that is the epitome of all human evil and they hand judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints of the Most High so that that final evil kingdom, the culmination of all wickedness, would be destroyed and condemned and judged even as the vindicating judgment is handed to the saints forever so that they have the blessing of all that God had in his kingdom eternally. That is what it means that the courts sat for judgment. Now, the Hebrew or the Aramaic word for judgment in Daniel 7.10 is dinah. Can you hear the word, or the beginning of the word, Daniel, from that word? Daniel's name is a way to express the message of this book. That in the end, all things are pointing to, and all things are anticipating that there will be a day that heaven sits down, and the courts will judge, and the judgment will be definitive, and no nation will win, only the Lord Jesus Christ will triumph and his saints and those who know him and have been sanctified by him, they will triumph in the end. And everything in Daniel is working out and is the evidencing of how history moves in that singular direction and ultimately our God judges. And that is not him being judgmental. He is righteous in it. It is him declaring there is only one winner in history. And that then shows the supremacy and sovereignty of Yahweh and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the message of the book. And that message is saturated in every part of this book, even the beginning. It should be no surprise that in the very opening verses of Daniel, this message is broadcasted and proclaimed with great intensity and in a provocative and very practical way and here is a good way to think through the nature of god's sovereignty his supremacy that god judges that he rules over all kingdoms and history here is a good way to think about it that god is king in the crisis that in the time that you think is the most out of control in the time that you think is the most terrible in the time that you think is most fearful God is sovereign over every element. And that is the message of Daniel 1, 1 through 2. You could think of it this way. We all sometimes say, I had a really bad day. We all talk about bad days. And, and when you reflect on some of our bad days, they kind of are funny. I one time had a student who told me about his bad day. It started as a, actually a perfect day. He was sitting at his home, and 
typing an essay on his computer. It was a great essay, the perfect essay. He's going to get an A. So happy. Sitting outside, the sun is shining. The lawn is nicely manicured because he did it. He's waiting for a phone call from a job that interviewed him and probably was going to hire him. And then he was waiting for another phone call from his girlfriend who he thought he was going to marry. Well, perfect day. Well, the, the, the guy forgot to uh, turn off his sprinklers. And so in the middle of everything, the sprinklers just turn on, spraying his laptop, causing it to short circuit. In his effort to try to save his laptop, he jumps off his chair. The chair smashes his leg and breaks it. And then the sprinklers keep sprinkling the lawn, destroying all the turf. And he can't move. He's having trouble to crawl out of the the mess that he's under. And then he hears the phone ring. (laughs) And then it goes off. Then he hears it ring again. Then he hears it ring again. And again. And again. And again. That's six rings. So you say, what, what did he miss? Well, he missed the call from the employer who then called him two more times. And on the third time, the employer says, if you're not going to answer the phone, I'm not hiring you. And you say, well, what were the second three rings about? <laughs> the rings from the girlfriend. <laughs> and she said, if you're ignoring my calls, third ring, it's over. And so the perfect day which had the perfect essay and the perfect lawn and the perfect job lined up and the perfect woman became his most terrible bad day. And as he's telling me this story, we're laughing about it because that's what a good pastor does. (laughs) No, it, it wasn't a good day for him. But in recollection, we just think that's the Lord's providence. And yes, Yes, we can have stories that are no good days, and upon recollection, we can chuckle about it. There is some humor in it. But there are days that are truly, truly bad, truly, truly horrific to us. And when we are in them, we struggle to remember God. We struggle to remember God. And then when we do remember him, we remember him with great frustration, with great questioning. We cannot see his sovereignty. We, we, we are struggling to understand how God and why God would allow this to happen. We, we think this doesn't make any sense. Could you have any worse timing? Could you have any worse plan? This seems like, and this is what's rattling in our head, this is just a big mistake because I can't see how anything here would be right. In these moments, what they re- reveal to us is we have not familiarize ourselves with how the sovereignty of God is and works. We have not had our eyes opened and trained to see his sovereignty from his perspective and what is truly going on. And what we need to do and what Daniel is training us to do by taking us back in history to a very specific moment of time a historical precedent, a historical fact. Daniel is reminding us, do you see the sovereignty of God here in every part of maybe one of the worst days of Israel's history? Do you see the sovereignty of God? And if you do, 
then you understand your God for any bad day you may have in your future. God is king in the crisis. That's what we need to train ourselves to understand. And Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 2, provides us two major realities about the sovereignty of God in crisis. And the two realities are this, that God is sovereign over all the circumstances of the crisis. And God is sovereign over the collapse that happens in the crisis itself. He's over the circumstances in and around, every single factor in and around the trial, and he's sovereign in the collapse. It doesn't just happen despite God. It happens because God designed it that way. And we need to understand these realities. And so with that in mind, let us see the sovereignty of God, that God indeed judges that he is supreme, that he does rule heaven and earth and all history from the very first two verses of this very, very rich book. Verse 1, God is sovereign over the circumstances. God is sovereign over the circumstances. A lot to learn here. And we can begin, excuse me, with the timing. With the timing. Look at the beginning of verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Stop there. You know, timing. Is everything. (laughs) And we know that. Timing is what makes a joke work. Timing is what makes speech effective. Even Proverbs 25 reminds us that it's, it's apples on settings of silver. That's a good word spoken at the right time. We need to understand, even in our speech, that timing matters. That we not only need good content, we need to know how to say it, and we need to know when to say it. All of those factors matter. Timing, then, is important, and we need to strive for that. Well, the timing of this event is by no accident. It is the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. It's the year 605 B.C. And a lot has been happening up to this point, and this is a landmark moment. You see, this is the moment that marks when the southern kingdom begins to spiral out of control. Before, the southern kingdom, despite all of its sins and despite all of its turbulence, was relatively stable. One dynasty as opposed to the northern kingdom that had many dynasties. The southern kingdom had a succession of kings. The southern kingdom had the temple. The southern kingdom was preserved constantly against enemies and threats whereas the northern kingdom had massive turnover, massive coups, massive instability, massive overthrow. And so, and it culminated with the northern kingdom going into exile essentially 117 years before this moment. Everyone knew the northern kingdom was supposed to fall, but the southern kingdom, everyone perceived that it just couldn't fall. It just couldn't be penetrated. It just couldn't be overturned. No matter what happened, it would continue to stand. That was people's perception until this year. Until this year. You could think of it this way. For nearly 500 years, 500 years, the southern kingdom, though there were bumps in the road and everything of this nature, we recognize, but it stood. 
until this year, until the year 605 BC. Everything started to change. Deuteronomy, the book, warns that when Israel sinned, northern kingdom or southern kingdom, they didn't really have that conceptualization in Moses' day, any Israelites sinned, and the nation sinned in idolatry and disobedience, there would be a series of curses, and they would culminate in one final curse, one final punishment, and that is exile. And for the first time in 605 B.C., the first wave of exile for the southern kingdom begins. It's the beginning of the end. It is, to use a phrase from Daniel, the handwriting on the wall. They know it's over. It's the beginning of their last days. It's a very somber moment when it looks like everything is coming out of control. It's a very strong signal of what is to come. But here's what's odd, if you're reading this carefully. It says, in the third year, a king Jehoiakim. Now, if you actually look at another passage like Jeremiah 25, it'll give you a different year for the same event. And you say, is there a contradiction of the Bible? No, there's not. You see, there are different ways to tell the date. And sometimes when I tell this to the students at the Master's University, they look at me funny. They say, what do you mean there's a different way to tell the date? And I say, well, in America, this great land, we tell the date this way. You have uh, the month, and then the day, and then the year. That's how we were taught. But I say, how many people are international students? And they all raise their hand, and I say, do you not, is this not true that, that the, in some other countries, you, you say first the day, and then the month, and then the year? And the logic is this that you start with the smallest, then you go to the, the next biggest, and then you go to the next biggest, and it's kind of a nice progression. It kind of makes sense. Why do Americans do it this weird way? And the answer is because we're Americans. <laughs> and this gets into a larger discussion about even just how we understand measurements. And, and we understand that you can measure things differently. In America, we, we do this thing called feet and inches. And in the rest of the world, they do this thing called the metric system. We understand that. And people, you know, even my wife will come up to me and say, doesn't it make more sense? Metric by 10. What is feet to inches? Biblical, 12. <laughs> and I said, furthermore, furthermore, who has gotten to the moon? And why do we get to the moon? In inches. We can have different measurements. We can have different ways to tell time. We can have different ways to explain the date. And you say, so why does Daniel do a different way to date something here? Because he's using the Judean calendar. That's why it's different. Jeremiah switched over to the Babylonian calendar to say, Babylon's about to take over, so just understand it's over for you, Israel. You're under judgment. But Daniel says, I still will use the Judean calendar. Why? Because the king of the king of Judah still sits on the throne. 
He has not been defeated. And this timing is his timing. I will not use the calendar of Babylon because the calendar of Babylon would be to concede that the God of Israel has lost control of timing. That is not so. I will use the calendar of Israel in order to declare from the rooftops that our God has not been defeated. That is the message. The timing of events. We know, we know timing matters. And Daniel's announcement and the first opening words of, a, of the, this wonderful book are a salvo or a declaration that our God, no matter what, he still reigns. He controls the timing and therefore he controls everything because timing is everything. Sometimes we think that in our lives, how could this come at a worse time? It didn't. It came at the exact time that God ordained. There is no one else in control but him. And we must remember that. And Daniel's opening words are a declaration to that effect. It's not just that God controls the timing in the circumstances in or around Israel's downfall. He controls the tyrants. You know that this is in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And who arrives at that time? Who comes during that time? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. If we do some historical background on this individual, it is absolutely fascinating, and it brings out the sovereignty of God. Because you might not expect, if you really studied Babylon, and you really studied Nebuchadnezzar, you would really not expect this guy to become a king. You would really wouldn't anticipate it. We probably remember a Babylonian ruler by the name of Hammurabi. He had a law code. And post-Hammurabi, Babylon really fell apart nearly for 1,000 years. That's from 1750 B.C. all the way to a certain time period that we'll talk about soon enough. Nearly for 1,000 years, Babylon was a nobody nation. You would never expect 1,000 years for them to make a comeback. In sports, if a team doesn't make it for 50 years, people lose hope. What do you think if it's for 1,000 years? There's no hope whatsoever. But all of a sudden, 625 B.C., over a 1,000 years later, Nebuchadnezzar's father starts to campaign for Babylon, and everything starts to change. But he really didn't ascend to power. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in one battle, the Battle of Carchemish, overturned all these nations. And basically, overnight, in a sense, went from a nation that was a nobody, that had been dormant and incompetent for a thousand years and turned it into the world's superpower. And do you know what year the battle of Carchemish was in? 605 BC, the third year of King Jehoiakim, king over Judah. You think that was an accident that God raised them up? Here's another way to think about it. If you think about Babylon and you think as a nation and Nebuchadnezzar, They reigned and they had dominance in the world scene for less than 100 years, about 70 years to be precise. Raised up for exactly 70 years. Why? Because God said, I'm going to judge my people Israel and they will be locked into Babylon for how long? 70 years. Jeremiah 25 and 29. And now when you understand that, here's what history is doing. It's astonishing. History is illustrating. 
History is demonstrating. History is reverberating with God's purpose. Why does Babylon exist for the amount of time in history the way it does? Answer, because God decreed it so. Once, he was, once they finished his purpose, they ceased to be. They were overtaken. Once Nebuchadnezzar finished his purpose, God put him down. God put him down. That's it. Why do nations rise and fall? Why do tyrants come and go? One reason, for the purpose of God. The very existence of Babylon, its rise and fall in the time period that it is, is an absolute infallible demonstration that kings and history are shaped by the hand of God and the hand of God alone. Tyrants can be scary, but they're God's tyrant. That's what we have to understand. And what accentuates this even more is Nebuchadnezzar isn't just a bad guy, a cruel guy. He, as the text of verse 1 is, king over what? Babylon. And Babylon is the nemesis of God and his people. Babylon is the same term as the word Babel, from which we get the Tower of Babel. We know that the Tower of Babel was the culmination in the early days, in the ancient days of man's rebellion against God, that united man and united language would pose a threat, a united front against God. And that culminated and climaxed at the Tower of Babel. And that all of history is God restraining that, but ultimately allowing it to come back. And that's why in Revelation 17 and 18, in the end days, in the end times, what do we hear about? The whore of Babel, the whore of Babylon and the city of Babylon. Because what has been restrained will return. What has been contained will be unleashed. And we even see that that progression is ordained and controlled and managed by factors that we read about later on in the book of Zechariah. And here, Babylon. Babylon takes over Israel. Why Babylon? Well, on one hand, it's because God is forcing his people to start over. Where did Abraham come from? Ur of the Chaldees, which is the land of Babylon. And God is essentially telling his people, I'm sending you back to what? the beginning, and you've got to start all over again, and you've got to be just like the first guy that I pulled out of Babylon, who is Abraham, which is why all Israelites should have the faith of Abraham. As Haggai and Habakkuk put it, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Just like Abraham, he believed, he had faith in God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. See, there's a way to start over. There's a way to start over. This is a purposeful plan. And therefore, it isn't just to start over. On the other hand, it is to demonstrate the sovereignty of God. That even here, he has a purpose. That even with the worst of the worst, God is sovereign over them. And they don't manipulate him. They don't challenge him. He controls them for his good purpose. There are days when you watch the news, when you watch the elections, when you watch other nations and what's going on there, 
you see abysmal and absolutely wicked rulers. You see tyrants. And that can cause frustration. People get mad when their person doesn't get elected. Or when another person gets elected. They get furious. There can be frustration. Other people become fearful. They wonder what's going to happen to them. They wonder what's going to happen to their children. And if we're thinking even overseas, we wonder what happens to the children of fellow believers or, or our friends or our fellow missionaries. You can be frustrated. You could be fearful. You could be both. And you could be everything between the two. But here's what you need to remember. And this was not just fiction. This is what Daniel's reminding people when there was a tyrant that came to power. That is God's tyrant. Our God raised him up. And our God decides when he's put down. And our God sets his time. Not random things in history. Not just variable political factors. Not just demographic, sociological, military issues. It is our God. And he establishes them all. And they serve his purpose and his purpose alone. God is not only over timing, he is over tyrants. And God is not only over timing and tyrants, he's over people at the top, if you want to put it that way. Have you noticed the repetition of the word king? You have in verse 1, in the third year of the kingdom of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, he came. What do you hear over and over? The word king. What is Daniel's emphasis? Kings are in the hand of God. Sometimes we think kings and CEOs or whoever it may be, they're just filled with power. They have so much influence. They can do whatever they want. It's as if no one keeps them accountable. It's as if no one checks them in. It's as if no one controls them. Here's what Daniel says. God doesn't just control the lowly, the plain person in all the circumstances therein. As Proverbs reminds us, the heart of the king is in the hand of Yahweh. Do not forget, the ones at the top are just as much pawns in God's game as whom we think are normally pawns. They are all pawns to him. God controls the top. Everything and everyone, from the lowest part of society and the most mundane factor to the highest part of society and the most influential and seemingly autonomous, all of them are under the hand of God, no exception, which means this then, God is the only true and greatest king because there is no king besides him. And all authority is delegated from him. There is no parallel authority. This is not a power-sharing agreement or that there is authority that stands separated from God. God is the source and the possessor of all authority and he gives it to whomever he pleases and so therefore they are under his complete jurisdiction. All kings are in his hand and whatever the king does is determined by him and each king is that way because in the end they are all democratically the same before him because he is the true king. That's what we remember. God is in control of the timing of things. He's in control of tyrants. And he's in control all the way 
to the top. Here's something else, circumstantially, that he's in control of. Terror. Terror. When you're scared. What happens here in verse 1? Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem. That's a massive statement. Sometimes we don't understand that because we try to treat Nebuchadnezzar like a tourist. Yeah, I went to Washington, D.C. No one fears. I went to Santa Clarita. No one's panicking. I went to Disney World. No one's terrified. But Nebuchadnezzar going to Jerusalem means this, that between Babylon and Jerusalem and throughout the whole northern kingdom that doesn't exist anymore, granted, and the whole southern kingdom where Jerusalem is centrally located, he conquered city by city by city by city. There are inscriptions in ancient times that, and even for Israel that discuss that Israelites in Jerusalem could see the signal fires go out city by city by city, and they knew he was coming. There are times in our life we can see terror on the horizon, and we're terrified. There are times when we can see the troubles coming. There are times when we can anticipate that there are going to be difficulties ahead. There are times when we can anticipate that the unknown is going to happen, and the unknown is terrifying. There are times, it's not just that terror is around us, terror is coming toward us, and that can be horrific. And in those moments, what you have to understand is, who brought Nebuchadnezzar there? Yahweh. Yahweh did. And as the terror gets closer, we can't be terrified. Because that's all in the sovereign hand of God. And it's not just when the terror is coming. It's not just when it's coming towards you. It's when it's in and around you because God didn't stop Nebuchadnezzar from coming. He, sometimes he stops him in his tracks. We know that. Sometimes God intervenes and he prevents and precludes. That has happened for over 500 years approximately for the southern kingdom in a lot of ways. But this time it was different. Look at the end of verse 1. It's not just that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. He what? Besieged it. Terror is not just when it comes. Sometimes terror is all around you. That's the nature of a siege, is it not? You're surrounded. You feel like you can't escape. And here's what you must learn, even in those moments. Our God is sovereign. He's put you there. This is not an accident. This is not a mistake. You know, sometimes Israelis say that peace is just the time between wars. That's their cynical way of looking at life. Peace is just the time between wars. Because in war, there is no peace. We know that. That's the inherent definition of war. That's the inherent antithesis of war. Brothers and sisters, the only peace that there is in a war is when you're resting in God. The only peace that there is in war is when you're resting in God because you know that God has put you there. Circumstances can terrify us. Circumstances can disturb us. Circumstances can make us question God. But here is Daniel's message. Our God is sovereign over them all. 
You want to talk about timing? Sovereign. You want to talk about tyrants? Sovereign. You want to talk about everyone to the very top, the ones we think are most powerful, the ones we think wield the greatest influence, the ones we think that are most maniacal and arbitrary? God is sovereign. You want to talk about terrifying things, things that cause us to lose sleep at night? Our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. What we need to do is to train our heart and mind to understand what is real. And this is real. Why? Because this is exactly what happened in 605 B.C. God was sovereign, just like he always is. Do not fear. Do not fear man or nations or tyrants or people at the top or terrors. Fear God. Fear God. And we'll be okay. Our God, though, is not just over circumstances. He's even over the collapse itself. He's not just over the factors that go into life and that surround life and are associated with life. He's over the collapse itself. And that's what we see in verse 2. I love this. The opening words tell you everything you need to know. It says this, the Lord gave. And I was reading this out of the LSB. And I'm so embarrassed to say this. But I said, oh, the, the word Lord is here. I wonder if that's Yahweh or Adonai. So I went back into the, the Hebrew, and I'm like, I am so dumb. Every time the word Yahweh occurs in the LSB, it's translated as Yahweh. So obviously, if the word Lord is used, it's translating the word Lord. Duh. I couldn't believe it. I'm the translator. I forgot that. <laughs> the word Lord here, though, is important. The word Yahweh is not used here. The word Lord is. Why? Because this is about the sovereignty of God. This is a reminder. You want to understand? You want to understand who is operating here? Not just the covenant God of Israel. Amen to that. That's absolutely true. But let's put an emphasis. And the emphasis is this. It is the Lord. It is the master. It is the sovereign one. It is the one who has control. It is the one who has governance. It is the one who owns everything. That's the point. The point of this is not just to emphasize God's covenant faithfulness. Amen. That is true. And we will see that. The point, though, here is this. You may see kings. You may see circumstances. You may see trial. You may see collapse. But what you must see is this, that our God is not a victim of that. He is the Lord. He is sovereign over it all. That's why this name is picked, because it goes with the entire purpose and the entire message and the entire application of these opening two verses. Yahweh is the Lord. He has mastery over this. And notice, in an act of sovereignty, the Lord gave. That is a sovereign idea. If you really stop and think about it, if you really dissect what it means to give, think about it beginning, middle, and end. To actually give something, I don't think we often think about this, but to truly give something, you gotta own it first. You got to own it first. Sometimes children, you know, they're like, I like to give a present to somebody. And you're, you say, that's a great idea, you buy it. <laughs> All they're asking for is them to spend your money, as if they're so generous. Now, to be fair to children, you know, we're teaching these things and they don't work and we understand. So we can be infinitely patient 
relatively to that situation. But I remember one time in the Bible office, because we like to joke around a lot, every year around Christmas, one of our vice presidents so generously gives us a box of chocolate. Now, some of our Bible professors know that one of our Bible professors doesn't really eat chocolate because he's just such a healthy guy. So what they used to do is they just take the guy's chocolate before he ever gave it to him, and then they would give it to the secretary as if it was a gift from them. <laughs> and the first time it happened, I'm looking at the box of chocolate, and I'm like, wow, that's so generous that so-and-so gave that to you. And I flipped the box, and I'm like, that's not so-and-so's chocolate. He just stole from the other guy and gave it to you then it's not a gift from you. And the guy said, well, I knew he was going to not do it anyway, so I just, I just directed where he would go. <laughs> we have a lot of fun in the Bible office, but you can't give something that's not yours. God gives. God gives. Why? Because he owns everything. It is in his sovereign hand. That's the beginning of the action of give. What about the middle of it? When you give, you're moving something from somewhere to somewhere else. That's sovereign direction. And the fact that it gets to where it goes, the results are what you want them to be. The act of giving from beginning to end means you own it, you control and direct it, and you control even the results of it. You control the entire transaction from start to finish. The act of giving is sovereign even as it is gracious. After all, what do we say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Why? Because if he can give it, he can what? Take it. He owns it, directs it, controls it all. That's what Job understood. And so here Daniel says, Let's be clear. If you want to understand this collapse that happened, if you want to understand the terror, the, the crisis of 605 B.C., you need to understand this. It was the Lord. And you need to understand this as well. He gave. You need to understand this. God is in control and has all authority, beginning, middle, and end. And what does he have control over then? What, what does he have ownership of? What, what does he direct? And what are the end results of a crisis? Well, what does he have sovereignty in those moments? Here's one. He, he controls defeat. He controls defeat. Notice what the text says. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, that is Nebuchadnezzar's, hand. He controls defeat. This is powerful. This is shocking because Nebuchadnezzar's bad. Why would you give a good king, quote unquote good king, over to somebody who's even worse? Why would you do that? And furthermore, this is highly unexpected because like I said, the southern kingdom has been living in the presumption for 500 years that there's stability, that there's a singular Davidic dynasty, that there are these promises that should guarantee that the Davidic dynasty shouldn't collapse. People lived what I, what, I, what I call Disney syndrome. That no matter how bad things get, there's always going to be a happy ending. And they always just thought that for themselves and for all their kings. And then for the first time, 605 BC, God pops the bubble and says, that's not so. That's not so. Why? Because God needed to judge Jehoiakim. 
Jehoiakim was terrible. He was so wicked. Jeremiah 22 says that Jehoiakim is so wicked, he doesn't even deserve to be buried. He should be totally disgraced. Why does God hand Jehoiakim over? Because he lost control? No. He handed him over. So he didn't lose control. He handed him over because he was judging him. Sometimes we look at something as defeat when it's actually God's judgment and discipline. Don't confuse the two. God doesn't lose. And we must understand that. Do not confuse judgment with loss. God always wins. His purposes always triumph, even when it's not the way you expect it to be. God is sovereign in the collapse. In what way? Even in the center of what we would consider defeat. It's not defeat for God. Things went exactly as he wanted them to be. It's not just though he's sovereign in defeat, he's sovereign in discipline. Look at the next phrase. He not only handed over Jehoiakim, he handed over certain vessels of the house of God. And you say, why does the text bring this out? Well, what's the big deal of handing over certain vessels of the house of God? We need to remember that the temple was a monument. The temple was a memorial, and it memorialized a lot of things, but one of the things it memorialized was God's relationship with his people. It showed that God dwelled with them and that God loved them. In fact, you can see this very clearly in First and Second Chronicles. The whole book of First Chronicles is God showing how he has cultivated the temple, how he has cultivated and, and constructed and compiled all the resources ever to construct a temple to give to his people as a gift, a gift of love to them. And so it symbolized his great affection and great dedication to them. And the way they treated the temple in turn, well, that, that also demonstrated their love or lack thereof with God. And so that's why it's so significant that in the end, not in 605 BC where we are, but later on in 586 BC, approximately, what, 20 years later or so, that the temple is burned down. Because what is that essentially saying? The relationship looks like it's over. If you just destroyed the very memorial, the very memento of God's relationship with his people, then it looks like it's over. But Chronicles doesn't stop there. Chronicles has the last phrase, which says this. In the year of Cyrus, God said, go rebuild the temple. The relationship's never over. The relationship's never over. Nevertheless, all that to say, why talk about temple vessels? Because it's not just about God ruling it's about one's relationship with God. And yeah, it wasn't that every single vessel was brought into uh, captivity at that point of time. There's going to be more to come later on. This was just a warning shot by Babylon. But everyone could read that, and everyone could understand the situation. And here's what it looks like. God's disciplining us. He's causing distance between him and us. Our relationship is starting to deteriorate. Our relationship is starting to become more and more distant. On one hand, there's a warning here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Judgment and discipline are serious and weighty. God will deal with those who are errant and wayward. But here's something else to remember. That even then, 
even when, for one reason or another, you're under discipline or you just feel distant from God, even then, what is Daniel's message? The Lord gave. This is from the Lord. This is of our God. And because of that, then, you are not abandoned. And he has not forsaken you. He is still sovereign over it. He is still in control over it. That's why you can humble yourself under the hand of God and he will bring you near. Why? Because he's still sovereign and he's still present in those circumstances. God is sovereign in defeat, even as he is sovereign in discipline. In discipline. He's not only sovereign in defeat and discipline, he's sovereign when darkness wins. Notice what it looks like. Nebuchadnezzar has brought them, that is the temple vessels, to the land of where? The land of Shinar. You say, what's the big deal about calling it Shinar? The idea of Shinar, that's where the Tower of Babel, that's where it was found. That was where it was originally located. And that's where Babel will reemerge in the future in Revelation 17 and 18. And as we see in a passage like Zechariah chapters 5 and 6, and And it just seems like here that we have a setback because, yeah, you had the Tower of Babel, but then after that, God fought against Babel, and he even took one man, Abram, from Ur of the Chaldees. He transplanted him out of Babel to show, I can take somebody from Babel and make them good. And so things are advancing, and redemption is advancing, and it looks wonderful. And now Israel's going back where? To Shinar. And it looks like evil won. It looks like evil triumphed. It appears that what was supposed to happen, which is you're supposed to move out of Babylon and overcome Babylon, that everything went backwards. Everything was a loss in life. In life. You can can encounter so many challenges, so many obstacles that seem to impede what we think our agenda our purpose, God's direction should be. And we live in a world where things just don't always happen our way. And we call those things, oh, that's a setback. That's a setback. And it's okay. If you want to feel that way, I understand. And if you want to think of it in those kinds of terms from a human perspective, that's phenomenologically acceptable. But here's what Daniel reminds us. Who's the one who brought those articles to Shinar. Who's the one that sent them there? Our God did. So therefore, this is not a setback. This is not a step back. This is not one step backwards, two step forwards. This is all just moving what? Forward. This is all just moving forward. Even when it looks like darkness wins, it has never won. It has never won. Our God still reigns. He still wins. God is sovereign not only over defeat or discipline or when it looks like darkness wins, but even when it looks like the demonic triumphs. He, Nebuchadnezzar, brings these temple vessels not only to the land of Shinar, but just to add insult to injury, he brings them to the house of what? His God, parading as if his God is superior over Yahweh. This is blasphemous. And that would be so humiliating and so discouraging to people in Daniel's day. And we don't like to lose. 
No one likes to lose. Even nowadays, in the present day, people don't like it when Christianity looks bad or some other religion looks better than us. I remember in high school, the way we used to talk about Christianity versus Islam versus Judaism, we would talk about, well, who has more members? And who's made more accomplishments? And who's got more famous and you know, influential people? And, and who's more violent? And all this kind of stuff. We would talk about those kinds of things. As if that's what makes Christianity true. We didn't know better. But everyone was doing it, which doesn't make it right. And even today, though, people try to make the appeal, look at how wonderful Christianity is. It's got hospitals. It's got this social impact. It's got influence, etc., etc. And then we get really nervous and upset when we see some other religion or some other force or some other entity triumphing over us as if that makes God look weak and here's what you have to remember it's what Daniel reminded us that doesn't make God weak at all God's sovereign over it stop looking at it the wrong way it reminds me of the story in the book of first Samuel when they took the ark of the covenant into the house of the Philistine God do you not recall this somebody could say well that makes God look weak Sure, until Dagon falls on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And then, I love this, the Philistines have to help him up. It's like, get a clue. If you have to help your God up, maybe he's not God. But in case they didn't get the memo, the next day, we know what happens. You cut the God's head off, you cut his hands off, and now he's prostrate on the ground, decapitated. Now that, I think, communicates. <laughs> and what's the reminder? Back then and here, our God is sovereign. It is not by sight that we walk, but by faith. And sometimes when it looks like the demonic wins, the demonic never wins. We do not get intimidated. We do not look at just the circumstances and imply and infer from that that our God has been weakened. He has not and we have to learn that. God is not just sovereign when he is in when there looks like there's defeat or discipline or when darkness wins or when it looks like the demonic triumphs. It is even when he is defamed, he is still sovereign. Notice this is so outrageous. Nebuchadnezzar brings in the articles of the temple even into the house of the treasury of his God. You say, why? Because he's going to use those articles to worship his pagan God. Can you imagine the level of outrage? It's blasphemy. He's challenging God. He's defying the God of Israel and saying, you're so worthless, I'm going to use your stuff to worship this God as if you worship that God. Nothing could be further from the truth. We remember Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches that have fallen upon you fall upon me. For any godly Israelite and for any of us now reading this, this is outrageous that Nebuchadnezzar could insult God and pervert things so highly in this way. It is absolutely offensive. And here's the reminder. Even then, 
who gave the vessels into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? God. Who's the one who brought, allowed them to be brought to Shinar? God. Who's the one who brought them to the house of that other God? God. Who's the one who even allowed them to be used this way? Yahweh. Even when sinners blaspheme God, God is still sovereign. Sometimes atheists say, well, if there is a God, then why don't you just strike me dead right now? And I sometimes think, Lord, just oblige the guy. <laughs> you know, make a wish. Grant a wish. <laughs> and here's what we have to realize. Even when it looks like God is silent, he still is sovereign. Even when our God is silent in the face of the most blistering, ignorant, foolish insults, he is still sovereign. And that is what Daniel is training his people to understand. God is sovereign. He is supreme. He is the judge of all nations, not the other way around. He is sovereign over every circumstance, the timing, the tyrants, everything to the top, the terror of it. And he is sovereign in the anatomy of the collapse that happens in crisis. When you think you're defeated, when you're under discipline, when it looks like darkness wins, when it looks like the demonic triumphs, and when there is defamation of God himself, he is still sovereign over that. And here is what is so beautiful by way of conclusion. And I love this because, yes, it may look like God is silent. Yes, it may look like he's not responding in the situation. And we have to trust that he is sovereign. But even here in Daniel 1, 1 through 2, he is not silent. There's a point to all this. There's a reason why it's in Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 2. Because when Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah, and takes people captive. Who does he take? Daniel. God is sending Daniel to Babylon. Why? Because it is going to be through Daniel that God reveals to this proud and blasphemous king, you are no king at all. And systematically, I will tear you down until you eat grass and confess that God in heaven reigns. And I will use you to be the vehicle to have dreams that terrify you and that you cannot understand to thereby give the opportunity to unveil that God not only controls this king and this nation, but all nations in all history for all time. This was perceived originally the downfall of Judah as Babylon invading Judah. But what God is showing here is that Judah invaded Babylon. That's what actually took place because our God is king and he had a plan and he will drive all history through that plan. This is not random and our God never lost. Why? Simple. Because he is always king, even king in the crisis. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your resilient sovereignty. Train our hearts and our minds about looking at everything in our lives through the lens of your unfailing and undefeatable authority. And may we worship you all the more for your immaculate wisdom that is on display in this book. And may it cause our hearts to just rejoice in our God and to be so thankful that we know you because you first knew us. In your name we pray.
Amen.